0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio. Your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: Welcome to Season 18, Week 7, powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. I'm Shane Malloy with Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com. We're going to dedicate this show to Peter McNabb. Uh, we lost a great guy. Um, unfortunately, he was a fantastic supporter of this show. He was an avid listener. Um, he was always super positive every time I saw him. And um, he will be sorely missed uh, to not only the Colorado Avalanche, but also the hockey community in general. And, and condolences to his friends and family. And so we're going to start this um, show off uh, with the, the colorado avalanche and we're happy to bring on brian wilsey director of player development brian uh thank you for coming on our show and um you must have some fond memories of peter because he was one of the the finest gentlemen in the hockey industry and um we lost a good one there
2: yeah yeah i really do that was well said uh, well said shane um yeah peter um love 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 the game love to talk hockey uh no matter who you were uh, a fan a player uh, a coach, a staff member, no matter who it was, um, and uh, such fond memories from first coming here in the '90s as a draft pick uh, to now as a as a staff member catching up with him in training camp. You know, he could he could talk for for hours just just about the game and, and always so positive, and happy. So yeah, our, our organization uh, lost a good one there for sure.
1: Well, let's uh, chat about a couple of players that we had talked to you in the past and i always like to sort of revisit some of these guys to see where they are in their developmental process and one of your thoughts on um oscar olison he's getting this chance what i liked is that you know he played in sweden came over to the canadian hockey league played in the ohl got a cup of coffee in the american league last year in the playoffs and now is into his full season um in the ahl i know it's only been 10 games so far but I'd like to get your thoughts on his transition and what you've seen so far from a player, because that can be a tremendous jump regardless of the skill of the player of just trying to be sort of thrown into the big end of the pool and trying to navigate your, yourself through some of the nuances and how different the game is at the American league.
2: Oh, totally. Um, him, Oscar coming, you know, he was in the SHL. So he was playing with men. Um, and then to, to take a step to North America, which we wanted to do for his development in, in uh, Canadian junior in the, in the OHL, that was a different uh, a different route. Um, he did well there. Joined us here at the end of the year for for some playoff games uh, uh, with the Eagles uh, in Colorado, um, and then ha- had a rather busy summer. Um, uh, World Juniors. Uh, um, he uh, he went home uh, uh, following that, and then right back to Denver for rookie camp rookie tournament and then uh, nhl camp nhl exhibition games and then and then into the american hockey league and and your first year in the american hockey league there's a lot that comes with it um you're living on your own you know you're securing apartments and setting up bills and you're you're in a different country again he was in canada last year u.s for the first time this year uh, visas all those kind of things so there's a lot going on um for, for the young guys coming over and and uh he doesn't turn 20 till later this week so he's an 18-year-old kid coming from Sweden um we have a great staff here to support him we do have another Swede on the team andreas england that that has really helped him but uh, uh your first year in the american hockey league is 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 very demanding and like you say he he uses skill but there's there's a lot of things that go on so um this division over here in the pacific too i, I feel is a very strong division uh it's it's loaded with good prospects but also um a tremendous amount of of uh, American League vets that are high end vets, I call them. That uh, you know are playing in, in pretty nice cities and and uh, making making good contract uh, money out here. So it's it's a very difficult division to play in. Um, and the start that uh, that he's had the ten games in, um, you know, we're we're more than happy uh, with where he's at so far.
3: Brian, the last time we talked, uh, he wasn't in the OHL yet, but he was. He's coming out of the Elsfenskin, and um, I remember we discussed. His mental makeup, and how there were times where he, he, the way I wrote it in the book was he had almost the Alex Semin or Alexei Kolosov, or uh, more recently for you, you got the good version, but there was a poor one, which was Andrey Burkovsky where tre- tremendous talents, but they weren't always there. They weren't always present. They weren't always consistent using their skill set because of their, their mental makeup. It took them more time. Uh, jumping from the O to the A, as you know, is an enormous jump. How do you feel he's approached it in terms of the mental consistency? do you feel that he's showing the pace of play, the competitive that you want uh, competitive nature that you want to see day to day for him to have success there?
2: Yeah, in the early going here, uh, he has been um obviously we were we were aware of, of areas various improvement for Oscar and consistency was was right up there um you know, we, we found him in and out last year in in the OHL and coming in uh, uh, we addressed it right away. The coaching staff here has been great with him, Greg Croner and his staff. So um, consistency, you know, we, we in this in this league here, they're playing a lot of times, maybe just Friday, Saturday and then the following Friday, Saturday. So, um, you know, it's getting up for those weekend games and and having your best game every game. That's that's kind of the approach that we're challenging him with. Um, and so far, he, he's been he's been really good with that. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's not like you say, it's not an easy league to play in. But uh, uh, so far, uh, as a young player coming to this league, it uh, he's done well.
1: Want to ask you about Sean Barons and you look at, you know, I, I don't want to um just say it's about his size, but you look at around the NHL and how many defensemen are five, ten, or shorter. And there's only I only found ten that have consistently played, you know, a certain amount of games in the NHL to be NHL regulars. So when I look at him at that height, I go. Does he have the other attributes, not just the skill sets, but does he have like the grit attributes or the mental acuity attributes to be able to translate into the NHL and be one of those regulars? We look at, you know, the Sam Gerrards and, you know, the Jared Spurgeon's of the world who are smaller defensemen but are, are, are effective. So b- watching him play, you know, through the University of Denver last year and then he's back again this year and, uh, wouldn't be surprised he ends up playing three years in Denver because you know you should use that time if you can. Thoughts on his development and evolution, and where do you think he could continue to get better to be one of those smaller defensemen in the NHL that is effective and can play minutes on a regular basis?
2: Yeah, Sean at at DU obviously last year was a was a pretty awesome year for him as a freshman uh, coming in there as a as a true freshman at eighteen and having the ability to play. Um, big minutes in big games and and eventually win a national championship, which is which is always uh, a, a priceless uh, piece of experience for for our players. Um, he uh, Sam Gerrard's a great comparison. You know, we we do use clips from Sam when when we're when we're talking with Sean. Um, you know, an area of improvement for him is that uh, elusiveness and and the deception. You know, to to avoid some some contact and, uh, um, you know, uh, spin out of spin out of uh, battles in the corner and have that ability to be elusive, uh, uh, courage and compete is, is not something he's lacking. Um, you know, there's, there is some times where we're talking to Sean and say, Hey, you really don't need to take that hit there. You know, you can, you can spin off that, or you can make this play instead of, um, just putting yourself out there to take that hit. So, so courage he uses, uh, compete, um, uh, he competes like a bugger every game. So, that is not lacking, but, uh, you know, an area for him, uh, especially um, playing in the conference he does, um, and I don't want to harp on the ages again, but being a young player in that, and that's an old conference he plays in, those are big, heavy uh, uh, college athletes that, that are coming in on him, um, you know, uh, improving on his elusiveness and and his uh, deception is is something that we're working on, and, you know, a few years in Denver is is, is a really good spot for him to develop.
3: Do you feel that he's ahead of Gerard at the same age in terms of ability to absorb the rush because he's so competitive because he's willing to be so physical? He can actually um, box players out to the outside at maybe a bit higher rate at the same age.
2: Yeah, that, that's hard to say. I, I guess they were drafted right, right around the same area. Um, you know, the the development curve is is different for for everybody. Um, you know, Sean's gonna you know he'll get a few few years there. He had the opportunity to play World Juniors this summer, although it only it was cut short due to injury, and and hopefully maybe again this this winter. Um, so it's hard to compare, th- compare the two that way. You know, we do like to take active any challenge especially when they're in organization to, to, to show our prospects and, you know, they, they come to us maybe with a player that they, that they want to uh, model their game after. So, um, we supply them with clips and and ideas and, and, uh, um, you know, recommendations for their game. So that that's a player that he's identified. And, you know, if, if he does turn out to, to be a player like that, that's, that's, that's amazing, but, uh, it's a long road and, uh, he's tracking tracking very well right now at Denver, so we're, we're excited for Sean.
1: Brian, when when it comes to – do you find sometimes that the smaller player will be overtly competitive in certain areas, like you had mentioned with Sean, sometimes taking unnecessary hits because they feel, from their self-awareness standpoint, they have to prove that they can do it. And you, I guess you kind of – look, you can say to them, hey, look, we know you can do it but it's not in your best interest to do it. And sometimes you kind of kind of like have to mold that habit out of them and recognize, Hey, this is what you're good at. And we don't want you getting hammered by 225 pound power forwards coming down on you.
2: Yeah. You never want to, uh, um, suppress any com- compete in a player for sure. But yeah, there, there is other ways to, to show it. And, uh, Sean's a really smart kid. He's a really smart hockey player. So he understands it. Uh, so, so, uh, there is sometimes in his games where it's like, damn, yeah, I should have, I should have avoided that one. But, uh, you know, we, we love the compete and We love the kind of the makeup of the player. So, you know, you're careful in your approach and, and, and how you to uh, develop that part of his game, but, uh, he's really, uh, um, Coachable and and David Cotto there is, uh, has been great to work with. And, you know, all the things that he's thrown at him and the word thrown at him, he's, he's – uh, um, he accepts it very well and, and uh, he's, he's uh, shown great improvement.
1: Is that just a matter of situational awareness? Like, it's, you know, saying to him, hey, Sean, as you move up into the American League, talent pool compresses and then you go into the NHL, talent pool is going to compress again. There's going to be less time and space like so that elusiveness and situational awareness is going to be to your benefit. We know you can compete against these big guys. That's not a problem. We knew that you have the guts and the grit to do so, but you know, you also don't want to get run over every game either.
2: Yeah, correct. Each level. uh, And that's why we, we have the approach that, you know, be the master of the level you're at, you know, before, before you get to the next one. So, you know, when he's, and he's got that, uh, um, figured out, uh, you know, at the college level, then we'll, then we'll look to pro for him. But, uh, you know, until that happens, and he's, he's in a great spot and, and yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a great point that the time and space is, is cut drastically, uh, uh, in half each level you go up in the American league is, is, is one giant step. And then the NHL is obviously the biggest step. So, um, it's something that, uh, um, he's identified and we worked with him with and, and, uh, excited to see him improve.
1: We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll be back right after these messages.
0: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back and brought to you by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're continuing to talk about the Colorado Avalanche prospects with their director of player development, Brian Wilsey. Brian, I want to look at your thoughts on Martin Cowton. What I find really interesting about him, and I use him as, as an example, when fans or people in the media or, you know are getting frustrated and impatient with the progress of prospects and I say, look, the average age of a rookie is 22.9 years of age draft plus five. And, you know, Martin is now, you know, 23, just turned 23 years of age, that draft plus five years. And he's coming in to be, you know, playing, you know, regular minutes in Colorado. Talk about that process for him, particularly from like tough with COVID missed, you know, there's games missed in there, but from last year into this year and how that progress has been for him.
2: Yeah, um, you know, Martin, he coming to us to the to the Colorado Eagles in American League at 18. Um, that that's a huge step for him. Massive um, Massive step. Uh and he did well. He he did really well right away. Um, developed, but uh, COVID hits, games played goes down. Um, gosh, he was uh he was in Sweden for a little bit, um, just looking for places to play. Um uh, played a bit back home and then back here, back here with the Eagles. And uh, you know, his his game is really really accelerated. And, you know, he was doing things that a 20 year old in this league compared to other 20 year olds weren't, you know, but he, but he was in his third year. So um, his game has improved every year. Uh, He comes back uh, better every, every uh, training camp from, from, from summer of training. And um, you know, right now he's getting a shot. He's uh, he had a great first weekend here. He was one of the the last cuts uh, um, with the avalanche and then uh, had a great weekend with the Eagles um and now he's been up with colorado ever since so he's just uh he's finding his way up there finding uh um, scratching and clawing to get his ice time obviously it's it's an elite lineup to crack um but uh, uh each game is his ice time is climbing and you know picked up a couple points and in, in finland uh so the confidence is rising but uh like i said before when you know when he gets the opportunity it's you got to have your best game every game um and and for for a young player in the league and he's just just 23 years old so that hits your mark of of the average age of a rookie it's uh um you know it's it's exciting for him but uh he's uh he's doing everything he can to stay there
3: Brian his draft season I remember one of the most enticing things about Kyle was that he's coming out of the Chachua Pro League and Extra Liga he was so mature uh I thought that would help accelerate his development in a, in a bit or in a sense, do you, do you feel that just because the team roster's depth was so stacked, do you feel that that's the reason that he's he's a bit more of a, not a slow burner, but, but maybe relative relative to how mature he was, he, he was not called up as early as you expected? Or how, how do you look at him from a development perspective and say, these were the areas that he really needed to improve and, and it's taken a bit more time than usual?
2: Yeah, Martin is uh, super quiet kid, uh, very keeps to him, uh, reserved, keeps to himself, um, you know, uh, in- introverted uh, guy. But uh, um, he, you know, coming to the American League, that was a big step for him. Pavel Frankuz was here with him, so that helped a little bit to get him out of his shell. But, uh, you know, there's an element of feeling comfortable, um, feeling comfortable at this league, uh, at this level, sorry, um, and then playing with that confidence. And that took a while. Um, And then when it finally did happen and got comfortable, then the next step with Colorado and then really not feeling comfortable getting up there, you know, trying to, trying to, to blend into that level right away. Um, You know, so that, that's been a step for him getting, getting just little eight, seven game uh, chances here and there um, you know, that, that was a big step for him and and him, you know, grasping and feeling comfortable at that level. Uh, So what our hope is now is that now that he's, he's got that opportunity you know, at 23 and a little more mature and a little more um comfortable around that dressing room, around that team, around that staff, that that he can stay up here because uh um with the Eagles, he's really, you know, he he's a premier player on this team. He's he was a go-to guy all season last year with the Eagles um in the playoffs as well. So um when I talk about mastering one level before the next, that's that's what he's done here with 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 the Eagles. So um moving up to to the avalanche, we hope is is a permanent move for him.
1: Lastly, we'd like to ask you about uh sample Ranta and he was an interesting player coming into the draft because when I looked at him, like he's six foot two lanky player can skate and can absolutely hammer the puck. I mean, his shot was like the one thing that sort of separated him from a lot of his peer group in his draft year and talk about, Him as a player, you know, coming over, playing in the USHL and going into college hockey for three years and then coming in sort of integrating himself into the American Hockey League. And I think sometimes those type of players who are really excellent at a couple things have to find a way to adapt to their game a little bit to sort of round it out you don't want to take it away but you got to be good enough to be able to handle a lot of multiple situations so from watching his development what have you seen in terms of his evolution that he's improved upon that doesn't take away from that you know shooting and skating but you know has made him I guess more reliable and then more trusting from his coaching staff
2: yeah, I, I think um, for all players, uh, you know, we, we talk about in development is, is role acceptance and in allowing yourself to, to evolve as a player and changing a role. You know, he he comes out of the University of Minnesota as a point of game player. Well, is he going to be point a game player with the Eagles? No, um, or the Avalanche. Uh, um, so it's it's coming in here and and learning other as uh, other aspects of the game and improving on those. So you're exactly right. He hammers the puck. He flies up the ice. The the just oozes individual skill. So, you know, it was it was the job here of the American League staff to to you know help him with the rest of the game, the defensive reliability. Um, the you know, the coach having the ability to look at him late in the period or late in the game and want to have him out there. Um, and when he first got here, that wasn't that wasn't there. So um that's evolved. Um, and then when he does get those opportunities, whether it's net front on the power play or or in the one-timer spot, whatever it is, you know, he has the shot and he has the ability to to finish there. But in order to to move up in the lineup and, and, and garner more ice time Uh, at the pro level. It was, it was uh, improving on the other aspects of his game, which, which have come, you know, uh, in increments. So um, when you have that natural ability there, they're they're fun prospects to work with, you know, you're you're doing stuff post-practice or pre-practice. It's, it's, it's really impressive to watch them. Now it's just the rest of the game. It's the gameplay. It's the, the game management, it's situational play that uh, that is uh, that is a work in progress with him.
3: You mentioned you mentioned the situational play. I, I felt like his rush offense has always been there, but the cycle offense hasn't, and that's due to sometimes it's decision-making in small pockets with small windows of time. Uh, do you feel that, that he's shown progress through college, and have you seen some transition at the HL level where he's making the right decisions with the puck in small areas when he's trying to cycle his offense?
2: Yeah, that's a good point, Brad. It's, it's, it's something we saw, um, you know, if you look at a lot of his, his goals at Minnesota and and, and coming into pro, they were, they're were great individual efforts, uh, flying down the wing, cutting to the middle and using his shot and his size. Um, and then, and then coming into pro, it was, it was, uh, you know, working with line mates, you know, uh, D switches, cycling, whatever it may be in the offensive zone. Um, that's a, that's a, gosh, daily, daily occurrence with video with him is just, is just finding ways to, to produce offense with others. So um, it has improved for sure, for sure it's improved. um, But it was something that he was deficient in when he got to pro, but now using those tools, it's uh, you know, it's when we've, you know, he's understand how to use his body and, and, and create offense um, using that and using his line mates. And and that's really, uh, we saw that at the end of last year and then into this year. And uh, um, you know, he's, he's an exciting prospect for, for us because of those uh, attributes.
1: What's next step for Sambo and what are you looking to see from him uh, in this call up? Uh, You know, that, that progression of what he needs to do. Um, And you talked a little bit about when the young players come in, they have an identity about themselves. And sometimes that, or almost all the time that has to be augmented and maybe changed in some respects, because, you know, what you did in junior, what you did in college may not entirely translate into the NHL.
2: Um, yeah, with, with the call up, you know, it's, it's no secret that, uh, um, the, with the avalanche, you know, they play a fast game, you know, they're, they're hunters, um, on the forecheck and, you know, he'll find a spot on that third or fourth line. So that's what he has to do. He has to hunt. He has to get on the forecheck. He has to disrupt, uh, be a physical player and have extended shifts in the offensive zone. So he has the skating, he has the size. Um, it's using those, those attributes to to mold into that kind of player that, that fits that role on that line for that team. And, um, he's a smart kid and he understands that. And I think with role acceptance comes self-evaluation and that all, you know, that's, that's all development. So, um, He's he's been showing that here with with the Eagles and now with with the call up to the Avalanche. You know we're we're very hopeful and excited for him to to be able to to show those skills and and hopefully hold down a spot on that on that line and become one of those those players that uh, that can con- contribute with the Avalanche.
1: And that's what I find really interesting about the role acceptance. And even if you get a skilled guy like um, Ranta on, like maybe a fourth line, he doesn't have to. Think of himself, oh, now I'm a banger and crasher, because that's not really his game, but he has enough size and skating ability to be a disruptor. It's to disrupt the flow, to chase after pucks, to use some of those skills in in a chasing sequence. And there's some other big guys who can obviously on your third and fourth lines that can smack some you know bodies around, but then he can use his skills to like, what would I? what disrupts me as an offensive player, I'm going to do the same so I can go hunt pucks and off I go. So I'm really interested to see, I'm going to watch him on purpose, Um, you know, over the next, just to see how he adapts to that. But Brian, thank you very much for coming on the show. We always appreciate it and uh safe travels out there.
2: Great. Thanks Shane. Thank Brad.
1: That's Brian Wilsey from the Colorado Avalanche. Brad, I'm going to take a short break. We'll be back right after this.
0: Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back in powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now going to do our player development segment with Pat Malloy, NHL skills coach and skating coach and player development. Pat, thanks for coming on the show again. We always appreciate it.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, the topic this week uh, for this segment is creating pockets of time for high-percentage first touches through skills, habits, and details. So walk our listeners through the definition of that and then how that applies when you're teaching it to practical application.
4: Yeah. I I mean, really, this sort of boils back to – you know, an alteration of something my grandparents used to say to me, and that was a penny saved is a penny earned. Um, I look at it a little differently within the scope of the game. And I think about a second saved is a second earned a second saved with your movement, you know, within a play is a second earned to do something more positive or more productive with the puck on first touch. And so You know, when I look at it through that lens and breaking down the ways we can create time through our skills, the habits that we use the skills with, and the detail by which we apply them is really what that concept is all about. So, you know, I'll look at an area like puck retrievals, how many puck retrievals will happen in in a 60-minute game of hockey, and in what ways can we look at that and say, all right, if we pick up time on this percentage of this play... Or these puck retrievals, can we do a better job at creating a little bit more time so that on our first touch, something more net positive happens from it? Then that's a you know a good thing for the player and ultimately a good thing for his team.
3: Pat, is it more difficult to to teach a player how to add additional time if they're instinctively more physical?
4: Hundred percent, because you know inherently big, strong, fast players want to go big, strong, and fast. And so a lot of what this is, is, is really between the years, it's having them recognize the power of scanning the ice, the power of, of, you know, pre puck um, threat assessment, if you will. So where's, where's my support? Where's the threat coming to my possession? And then, you know, learning to, to see those things, read those options and make a quality play off of those. And so, from a skills perspective, you know, a player that's that's already a, an average or an above average skater that possesses you know good closing speed, a lot of times they're just in the mindset that I got to get there and become reactive upon getting there, when really what we're trying to do is recognizing speed change is really a, a powerful tool when it comes to a skill. But having our play you know pre-selected versus being reactive um, once we've got the puck and then taken what's given. You know, often what we'll see when we break down shifts, you go through a five-game segment with a player on on their puck touches. If it's all reactive based, what you're going to find is typically the net next play isn't as quality as if we were to have it pre-selected, and we were to have some pockets of time created from speed change, from threat assessment, uh, and from making you know players do things their coach not to do with deceptive skills, etc.
1: Pat, how much does this apply to, you know, some of the mental acuity attributes when you're evaluating the player, then helping them learn this. So there's obviously a learnability aspect to the, to the player, Um, task switching, of course. Um, But to me, it's really, I'm really interested in the situational awareness more of compartmentalizing is when you're setting up those set plays is, you know, say you're a forward and you're going against defensemen within your division, say the NHL division, and you're going against these guys a lot, does that make it much easier with familiarity to make those set plays, knowing that defenseman and what they're more likely to do?
4: Yeah, you know, I'll often say there's no secrets in hockey, and and I think it's a competitive advantage if we know how the game is played historically if we recognize the systematic approach that our opponent typically uses, and you know, in today's day and age with pre-scout and all the certain aspects of what prepares a player to play, those are all tools that can be used against your opponent. And so if we know how the game is coached, if we know that a defender's trying to stick on puck and flush me up the wall, for instance, um, on a, on a half board retrieval, um, using that information against our opponent is, is crucial. So you know, is your habit to go blindly as fast as we can on an angle to the puck and, and try to get rid of it as quickly as we can? Or is it to draw someone out of position based on we've done a shoulder check or two or three, we recognize the angle that they're coming and it's set up just the way we knew it would. Are we able to use our skills, our, our speed change, our deception to create a small hesitation in a defender, get them to put their par- their stick on the wrong side so that we're able to You know, make a play ourselves moving on first touch, uh, move it to one of our teammates in a higher quality position than we are because we did a job to sort of set the table before we eat. And those are some of the details that we'll talk about in terms of how we break down a scenario. How do I get a puck um, in a corner sequence when we know that 95% of the teams we're going to play are going to overload How can I get enough time and space to extend my possession to improve the condition of the puck based on me being involved with it? Or is it just that I got there first, got bundled up and it's a net zero because we battled, we battled and it got stripped. Now, listen, there's always time where we're going to have to, um, you know, extend our position or uh, extend our possession with body positioning and different things that allow us to hang on long enough to maybe make that first play a little bit better, but really, Making sure we recognize that if we know the flow of a game, if we recognize the tactics used against us from our opponent, can we use all of that information to devise a plan that gives us the chance to have a a more impactful, uh, um, you know, a a more impactful and a more net positive impact on the play that comes from my touching the puck?
3: Pat, can you talk about uh, and contrast? Uh, stylistically, how you would develop a player, say such as Sidney Crosby or William Eklund, where they do a lot of what you're discussing with fake contact point generation and uh, initial deception to basically freeze the opposing defense uh, before they can be covered. Relative to a player like Mason Marchment, or maybe in this draft class an example, this would be Ethan Medima, who you know six four, incredible length. And so just the body type differences between crosby Eklund, Medema and Marchment and what that means for your development in terms of how this is done.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, body type and, and stylistically for players, it certainly plays a role. It's, cert- it, it's not a, a one approach uh, fits all. So, you know, you bring up a, a player like Sidney Crosby, who's really good at creating uh, that small pocket off of initiating contact or a bump. Whereas typically what we'll find with a larger player is because they've got range and reach and they've got physical strength. A lot of times what you'll see is it becomes a strength competition where they want to lean on a player. They lose, you know, movement. They lose the ability to create space because they're busy being big and strong versus recognizing the power of, you know, if I'm able to use that strength to create a bump or initiate contact, but then generate, you know, movement on first touch, I become a a considerably harder package to stop than if I was just to lean on someone and and then remember, oh, geez, I guess it's time to skate. And so, you know, with a big player, recognizing a little can go a long way just based on physical tools. So creating that pocket with a bumper initiation of contact, but then reestablishing body position, because the one thing about, you know, a larger frame is, if, if you recognize and learn how to create body uh, position in, in your possession sequences, it makes it very, very difficult for a defender because they've just got to work that much harder to try to reestablish defensive side positioning. And it's uh, it can be really powerful. So based on body type, based on obviously athleticism and skating, there's similarities in the things that we'll introduce to the players, but recognizing that, you know, the, the physical makeup of a player, and then understanding how they can implement those as strengths um, is really so individual to each player, but ultimately a key, you know, to ask a, a five foot 870 pound player that, that can play and succeed a certain way um, to do things that aren't within the scope of their abilities physically you know, sets them up for a fail. So it's it's really doing a an evaluation of strengths and leveraging those strengths in the positions to create better first touches, higher percentage first touches. And by higher percentage, meaning the net play is positive versus negative, you know, by virtue of me being involved in it.
1: Pat, is the example of the big player who understands how to bump and then start creating that time and space? I, I think of Todd Bertuzzi big massive strong man but understood he didn't have to like smash horns with somebody every time he just bumped them off and then they'd have to try to recalibrate themselves and in that time frame he has that pocket of time to work with
4: uh, 100 percent. you know you think of of some of the best players in the world and you would think that you know being keyed on and focused on is going to create you know, physicality in the way that they're defended against and that they would take all kinds of, um, deliberate and incidental contact. And and when you look at that, you realize how come the, the best players in the world don't take all this contact? Well, they're really good at creating conditions where they're dictating the movement of others. And so a lot of times that can revolve around the idea of, um, you know, creating that initiation of contact so that now it's on my terms versus I'm reactive to, it coming in. So you take a large player, a Todd Bertuzzi is a great example, you know, here's not someone that took a lot of blows, uh, as a player simply because he was a big guy and, and people would figure, all right, I've got to take a healthy run here to try to control him. When you are that size and possess those physical tools to initiate and then work off of the fallout, you know, was, was a way to leverage his strengths And the things that made him really good, you know, even going forward into today's player, it's if you take a look at the best players in the league and ask yourself the next time you're watching, why don't they take a ton of contact, watch the game applicable um, physicality that they use in order to get things onto their terms. And then sort of leads us into the idea of establishing body position. That's an off puck movement in, in many cases where, you know, you once you've got a puck and then you've created body position, that's one thing. But you know, reading that and seeing the off puck options that if I create this contact ahead of time, it's gonna create time and fall in. And how I use that can fall into, you know, my ability to use my skill set better. That's 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 really the secret sauce.
1: We're gonna take a short break on hockey prospect radio. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about player development with Pat Malloy right after. These important
0: messages. Prospect news and analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back, empowered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're speaking with Pat Malloy, player development skills coach, uh, about some topics. Uh, so we're going to segue into the next topic that uh, integrates into the previous topic of the last segment. This, is, this topic is the art of establishing body position and dictating terms of gameplay. Fascinating topic in that respect, Pat. So give the listeners some background in terms of description, then how that sort of applies as you're teaching it, and then how that you know moves forward into when you're dealing with your clients, how they can perform that sequence effectively.
4: Yeah. I I mean, I, I really think that body position with regard to puck possession and extending possession of pucks is maybe the, the biggest and most single, um, you know, largest area that I'll find the drafted player, um, you know, with my time, you know, working in the national hockey league with two clubs, when, when a player's drafted and comes to their first development camp, where you see them, you know, in their first pro season in the American League, for instance, you know, a lot of times what you'll see is a lot of skills that worked in junior that weren't transferable uh, to the pro level. And the American Hockey League is a great example. But that's a tough league. And, and so it really shines a light on things like, you know, a player's ability to establish body position when it comes to extending possession or, or taking enough of it uh, to heat in the play in order to make the next play. And and what you'll find is that first three months, for instance, is a, is a really telling time for young players coming in because body position is not just the player on the puck. A lot of times it's the players without the puck too. It's an off puck concept where, you know, if, if we possess that space, it means our opponent doesn't. And so not only is it on ice drilling where we're recognizing, you know, how do I use my physical skills, my technical skills, in a tactical setting that allow me to take, you know, incidental and deliberate contact where I'm being defended against, you know, someone's trying to take our puck. Um, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is is going through shift video showing players the, you know, the power, not only with the puck, but off the puck of establishing body position, you know, by occupying space ahead of a defender, you now own that space. And it's, you know, the idea of the real estate of the game There's only so much of it. It's like beachfront property. Once you own it, it's yours. And so, you know, ending races before they become races is such a key thing. If you look at some of the, you know, for instance, the best teams or players that will defend against very dynamic or electric players, I'll think of a Connor McDavid, for instance, what are the most successful teams uh, at defending someone who's virtually impossible in one-on-one settings to defend? It's by establishing body position. Creating advantage with your movement and occupying space before that player has an opportunity to use their elite level skills to burn you with. And so, uh, a lot of what we'll do from a uh, developing prospects and then, you know, even established National Hockey League players that, you know, are wanting to improve results or they're wanting to say, you know, I- I've fallen off a little bit, you start to look. You know some of the things that we start to see is is are they a little bit behind in establishing body position in areas, especially when they don't have the puck that gives them that access to the territory where they want to be and they want to go uh, to either you know create a puck acquisition route for them for themselves, uh, create a little turner and angle so that they can generate a shot attempt. Uh, when maybe they were getting cut off before. And so there's a lot that goes into it. But when you put all these things together, it really becomes a difference maker for them.
3: Pat, when I was growing up, I was a, a collegiate wrestler. Uh, and I was a terrible one. And yes. uh, I thought I was an okay athlete. But I was I was always uh, used as a human spin top and thrown 12 feet up in the sky. And it's because at the time, I, I didn't have the proprioceptive awareness to know exactly where I was positionally relative to my opponent who was weighing on me. And it took me a long time to get there. And even then, I still never had that elite level or innate sense for it. Like uh, what you're describing to me, I, I, I keep coming back to Peter Forsberg. You know, Peter Forsberg was somebody I feel like could leverage what you're saying at a totally elite level that is almost the caliber of his own. My question for you is when it comes to proprioceptive awareness and when it comes to being able to develop these, these qualities that you're talking about when it comes to translating, What is the spectrum of outcomes? Can you actually mold a Peter Forsberg from somebody like me who was a terrible college wrestler, or do you feel that those really are more innate and you're just trying to uh, grab those and then fine tune what's already there?
4: You know, again, sort of we talked about it or touched on it in the last segment in the individual approach to everyone's physical makeup and some of the tools that they have available to them. Um, but when you talk about, you know, the perception of how do I apply some of these things and then what can an outcome become, you know, a lot of times it's difficult because if it's not taught at a young age, it's you're, you're playing catch up for, for sure. Um, recognizing the power of action and reaction is, is, is really something when it becomes a guided learning, you know, I, I, ask a lot of questions with athletes. What did you see there? what did you feel in this, you know, scenario? So if we're looking at video of of something in an area we've identified as something we want to improve on and what you'll, you'll say, uh, or what you'll, you'll find players will say to you, you know, they felt pinched off or they felt like they couldn't take it to that spot or, you know, what they realize is they were reactive to defenders. And so it's really starting to sort of to change the concept in their mind that if I want to dictate the terms of this play, I've got to get the person doing the things I need them to do in order for it to trigger me into the things I'm trying to do. And so, you know, for instance, we'll talk a lot about, you know, how do I cut into your hands? Well, you're six, four, and I'm five, ten, and you're big, and you're strong, and you're rangy, and you, you, you know, I'm equally as so, however, you're bigger and longer than I am. So how do I get them to do the things I want to do? So creating a a proactive mindset in drawing that player to a spot uh, into doing the things that we need them to do so that we can execute at the level we're trying to is really about changing the mindset of, am I reactive or am I proactive in this? And so you know, Forsberg was a great example. When you go back and you look at video of Peter Forsberg, one of the things that you saw an absolute ton of was him taking pucks to spots that forced people to make decisions. I'm either with him and trying to lean on him, in which case it cued, you know, Peter Forsberg to, to do the equal opposite of what um, the defender was playing him a certain way. It cued him into the next. And if you left him to go, he had the speed, the maneuverability and the skill to make you pay for it. So now, you know, based on that proactive mindset, he's created uncertainty in defenders because it's, if I try to stick with him, he's going to use me um, as leverage points, get me leaning and work off of me. And if I let him roll, Well, he's got that, you know, the speed and and the ability to shoot cross body and do some different things. And so that all starts with him drawing a defender into making a decision. And a lot of times, again, I, I touched on it in segment one where we had said, you know, we know how the game is coached. We know how the game is played. And those sorts of things can become fuel for us to recognize we know a player is trained to do this. How do we get him to do what he's not trained to do? and And that really becomes the difference maker for let's force that player into a decision because decisions create wrong decisions. if 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 I force you into making a decision, it's either going to be right or it's going to be wrong. And if we round out the skill set that we have, and obviously, um, from a tactical perspective, how we apply this, if I force you into one set of circumstances, there's fallout from that. And the more we can become, you know, sharp with a player at recognizing what those triggers are and the corresponding next play that really becomes a difference maker for them when it comes time to, did I establish, you know, the dictation of how this play turned out.
1: Is Nick Lidstrom the perfect example of a player establishing body position and dictating the game probably better than anybody Because sometimes we just look from an offensive standpoint, but I like to look from the defensive side is he forces offensive players to do the things they don't
4: want to do ever. 100%. And body position is not just with the puck on your stick. I think that might be the clearest thing is it's, it's the idea of, you know, understanding the most valuable real estate within the game, but great example, you know, how much do we talk about how smart he was, how good his stick was, We'll break that down a little further how much of that was because he positioned himself in spots that took the best options away for the players he was defending and so inherently that's now created advantage for him so you know winning races how do you know I'll get that concept a lot you know how do i how do I win a race against a faster player? Well, you end a race before it becomes a race Mark Stone's a classic example of that. Um, you know, here's the player who I think we can all agree if you put him in a foot race with a Connor McDavid, we, we know who we're putting our money on, yet he's ultimately effective because of his ability to understand off puck movement, body position as it relates to, you know, being preemptive in the way that he moves so that he doesn't get himself into races he can't win. You know, Nick Lidstrom, another, you know, prime example of that is the processing was such that. Um, You know, did you ever see Nick Lindstrom on a scramble? You don't find him scrambling for pucks ever. um, Or getting into foot races. And that's really, that comes back to body position. And it's it's so effective and so important um, for every player on the ice, most specifically the players without the puck.
1: A hundred percent. So that was a great example. We appreciate that. Pat, once again, fantastic segments. We always appreciate it. And we certainly look forward to speaking to you next week about some more player development topics.
4: Great guys. Thanks for having me.
1: That's Pat Malloy, skills and skating coach and player development. Uh, We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these important messages.
0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM, NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back and brought to you by Outside Edge Hockey, hockey player development at outsideedge.ca. We're now going to talk about the Anaheim Ducks prospects with their assistant general manager, Martin Madden. Martin, thank you very much for coming on the show. We always appreciate it.
5: It's always a pleasure guys.
1: Well, we didn't get a chance to ch- uh chat with you after the draft. I found last year's draft actually super busy. Um and not as much time to sort of like get the thoughts of the guys on the floor. Um so we'd like to go through your first four picks in the draft. You guys had a busy draft, lots of first seconds. So right off the top, I want to talk to you about Pavel Mentyakov and you know, it was interesting when I was on the floor watching it um, all sort of unfold, and I started seeing the players there, and then I thought, well, that's a that's a Martin Madden Anaheim Ducks pick. I think they're going to take Mintyukov, and I looked over at Steve Cooley, he says, like, it's Mintyukov, right? And you took him, I'm like, thank you, Martin, you made me look good, right? But, you know, as you watched him throughout his draft season, um, and then as I've seen you know, watching the first 16 games of him in Saginaw this year, What, you know, what were the things that really jumped out to you in terms of his skilled, you know, his skills and his attributes that made you think, okay, this player is worthy to be drafted in this area. And this is where we sort of project him to be moving forward.
5: Well, I I think his his offensive instincts jump out right away. Uh, First time you see him, you you know, he wants to create offense. He's got the mentality. uh, He's got the vision. He's got the awareness to do it. And he wants to do it. Uh, I, I think, you know, he, he showed commitment the year before to leave his country, uh, despite the fact that the OHL wasn't sure if they were going to play. Uh, he showed determination and, and continued to, to, uh, to work out on his own in California and, uh, you know. Make the best out of a bad situation, and Jim uh, Sandlack was the one to track him uh, the closest early last year, and he saw he saw him make a major progression as the first half unfolded. And Stuff um, Peanut also saw that towards uh, towards November, where you could see his confidence grow uh, each and every game. So that's pretty much where I started tracking him closely uh, along with our other scouts and uh, it evolved throughout the season he's he's just really skilled and 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 a driven kid.
3: Martin when you discuss his development from the beginning of the season are you talking primarily about um, structure because as you know like offensively extremely gifted but uh, also wanted to be a catalyst for offense sometimes when he couldn't. And, and so it was, it was a big part of your decision to draft him based off the fact that you saw progression in his ability to rein in his game enough structurally. So you felt comfortable that he could transition to the pro game. Uh,
5: I'm not sure about that, Brad. To be honest, you know, I think I think the Saginaw Spirit play play without much structure. I think it's part of the way they try to develop their players into all around uh, contributors. So, I think that remained uh, a question mark, but we thought that his overall hockey sense uh led us to be confident that when he had to he would uh and and that was our conclusion you know a this kid is smart enough that he understands when he will be asked to, to play a little bit safer to rein in the uh the energy and and the drive offensively he's going to figure it out and uh so that that was the process on from our end martin some of the things
1: that stood out to me when i watched him play is and you mentioned part of it was a situational awareness eh, of understanding what he needed to do in certain situations and everything's context-based of course like what you know you got to take a look at what the player's skills are what his attributes are and then the context of what the coaching staff and what systems they are playing and can this, you know, player adapt to different situations. And sometimes, you know, as I was learning to scout is sometimes I punished a player unfairly because I failed to look at the fact that what is the coach asking him to do? And, you know, like you can't punish the player for what he's asked to do. And this is what I have to do. He's my coach. Right. And try to separate those two things. And when you looked at that, you know, that situation with, with Pavel is I thought I saw somebody who has adaptability, um, and that to me really jumped out in terms of, you know, sort of a there's a grit in his game of adaptability, but he's a very cunning player, um, and I thought that was going to be able to translate. Thoughts on on those observations as well?
5: Uh, I would agree, Shane. I think uh, that adaptability and that uh... – that grit can be seen when he did have to defend when it mattered in games where the the score was close. the situation demanded that he bear down defensively. uh, We did see progression in in that respect Uh, in terms of uh, relating the, the context, I think we, we should never forget the context of the draft year as well and players understanding what their best attributes are and thinking that that's what they need to display, uh, even overly display. And uh, I think that comes into our evaluation of a player like Pavel as well.
1: I want to get your thoughts on Nathan Gaucher and Look, how often do you hear from coaches? Can you get me a big center? Can you get me a big center who competes, but that has some skill? Well, gee, th- you know, like, thanks. You know, that's a, a bit of a tough order for us, but we'll do our best. And, you know, like when you drafted Nathan, did you look at this big raw kid with a lot of upside Um, and a player who I thought his point production, you know, you see some players who produce a lot of points, but not a large percentage of that would be translatable to the NHL. Or when I watched Nathan's game, I think a very large percentage of the points he produces are points that or situations that could be translated and happen at the NHL on a more regular basis. Does does that situation give you guys confidence that his offense, along with all the other attributes, uh, you know, skills and attributes he has um, is going to make him uh, a potential, a formidable two-way center at the NHL level.
5: Uh, I would also agree with your description. Uh I, you know Nathan plays in my hometown i I saw him play a lot uh, so when you see a player play a lot you you do get to see the upside but you get to see the deficiencies and the weaknesses and uh, ultimately I think your first statement is, is is bang on like you do not we don't get to see many big smart competitive driven fast sentiments uh, and certainly not in, in the queue uh, historically. And so he did He did stand out. Uh, and uh, the way he created the offense I, I, at that level and that he c- continues to create it this year, I think does translate to the NHL, regardless of the role that he ultimately fulfills. Whether that's at center, whether it's on the wing, a, 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 on a higher line like he did uh, with the World Juniors this summer. He will find a way. He he is smart enough to adapt. He has enough tools. He has enough grit. He has enough drive to find a way to adapt to his line mates, to the situation, to where he fits in the lineup. Uh, And that's what drew us to to him.
3: Do you feel that that adaptability will allow him to maintain his center status as he turns pro, or do you feel that, that maybe there's a chance he's more suited to the wing?
5: Uh, the more I see him play over the last two years and, and early this year I think he's going to be a center I think he's he's smart enough he's he's uh he's so good defensively uh in in terms of awareness of his coverages in terms of the way he kills plays uh in the defensive zone but also all over the place I think also that position uh helps with the type of skater he is uh he might not be the quickest or the you know the best in in tight areas but he is really fast and powerful and staying in motion helps uh him in that way and and center i think is is where he ends up uh, ultimately
1: do you think his you know situational awareness from a defensive standpoint i think he recognizes as a player that the better he is defensively the more opportunities happen for him offensively particularly between you know, the top of the circles of that, like to the neutral zone, um, where that's where he can take advantage and create some uh, like offense pushing the other way when he's strong defensively.
5: For sure. He kills plays. He, he gets loose pucks. He makes that pass and then it, his linear speed allows him to, to, uh, to create through the neutral zone, whether through support or, or carrying himself. So for sure, that base of being part of puck retrieving or killing plays in the defensive zone helps him.
1: I think for one of the things that jumped out to me that I really appreciated about his game was his puck support. Uh, you know, I like defensively and offensively, that, that was one of the things that I thought really sort of stood out for me and like, oh, at the, you know, Ontario, like maybe at the American League level, on the NHL level, that's going to really serve him well in terms of a habit he's already established.
5: Yeah, I think it speaks to his to his hockey sense. He understands where his game's at, and and he knows that that's the way he can contribute uh, offensively and defensively, but especially offensively. I think that's you know th- there are other limits uh, to uh, to his game, things that he needs to work on. Uh, offensively uh, but he knows that he can rely on that he can make the reads and support his line mates well and contribute that way
1: we're going to take a just a quick break on hockey prospect radio but we'll continue to talk about the anaheim ducks prospects right after this
0: you're listening to hockey prospect radio on sirius xm nhl network radio here's shane malloy and brad allen
1: We are back and brought to you by Outside Edge Hockey, hockey player development at OutsideEdge.ca. We're continuing to talk about the Anaheim Ducks prospects with Martin Mann, their assistant general manager, going through last year's draft picks, getting to the second round. Now, Martin, this is where you drafted two hulking, massive defensive defensemen who have some upside in some other areas but it was a question that was sort of posed to me about your second round. And I said, you know, I went back and I said, you know, I sort of pushed back against, they were a little bit more um, harsh against it because it me was the style of player, players. And I said, well, take a look at it from this perspective. Look at the way the game is played in the NHL. When you have more offensive roving uh, defensemen out there, you have to pair them with these insulating defensive defensemen to allow them to be at their best. And, and so there's additional value, not only to the that group, the defensive group, but to make that more offensive player better and make them feel more comfortable. And we've seen this throughout the NHL in these pairings more frequently than we have maybe in the past um, of the value of those insulating defensemen and if you look at you know, the St. Louis Blues or you know even the Tampa Bay Lightning they have defensemen like that um, so they can pair off and then you look at you know Jamie Drysdale and you look at Owen Zellweger and I think you know Noah Warren and Tristan Leno fit that mold for potentially those players moving forward so let's start with you know your thoughts on that overall.
5: Uh, another, another thought that I would agree with, uh, Jane. historically, you know, we, we've been together as a staff, mostly, mostly the same group, you know, a few additions subtractions over, over the years, but we've been together for 14 years. And if you look historically at, at the way we've drafted defensemen, uh, we have not, uh, uh, historically, that has not been the way we've had success. Look at the guys that we've produced that are playing in the, in the league, for us or elsewhere, and they they've been of a different style. But uh, we did we did target uh, a player like Noah uh, a little higher than we usually would, because they are so few and far between. Guys of his size, of his athletic ability. Uh, of his physicality with still untapped potential in many areas of his game, if you don't take them where we, we took him, you don't get them. You look at every one of the big right-handed similar players, uh, defensemen right now in the league, and that's about where they went in the draft, whether anybody likes it or not. So if you want If you want one, you need to step up and and take him. Uh, And and that's what we did.
1: I agree in in that respect. Because if you look at the trade deadlines over the last three to five years, you look at, say, we'll use Ben Sherrod as an example. What was the cost of acquiring a player like that? And they, they went teams go after those players specifically to pair them with those defensemen and, being able to actually draft them and then develop them within your culture and your player development department. And then, you know, have them be more self-aware of what their role is going to be so that you can, you know, specifically mold them and they're aware of that as they move through as an 18 year old up to, you know, 22, 23, I think it makes that process much more efficient and gives them a better chance of playing at the NHL level.
5: Yep. I think that's true. In terms of, in terms of, Tristan, uh, I'm not sure I would agree with your description of, of of his game. I I think his his game offensively offensively was uh, was negatively impacted by the the surgery he had on his knee the previous summer. And right. I think he I I think he demonstrated at our rookie camp and, and main camp that this kid's a player. Like he. he in terms of being an, a 200 foot defenseman like he can contribute in every way uh he's got really good hockey sense he's got good skills and he as his skating is getting better and better he showed that drive to be supporting the play in every situation i think uh, i think there's lots of upside to tristan's game uh, offensively even though he will need to be solid defensively to 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 make it a career. Like he and he does have that. He is he is smart. He understands where to pick his spots. Uh, and he is big and strong enough to be paired with uh with a Zalwiger if if he needs to uh, in the context of 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 our team. Or, but the his game is not. Is not done growing uh, on the offensive side. Uh, I'm convinced of that after seeing seeing Kemp.
3: Martin, uh, with respect to Noah Warren, do you feel that the the potential upside is somewhere between a K. Andre Miller and maybe an Artem Grushnikov, some sort of hybrid combination of that, where he can shut down the opposing defense, but then transition because of his skating ability and because of his first pass. Uh,
5: I yeah, I I'd use. Eric Chernak more um, because I think it's going to be the same type of progression over the years. It's going to be a, a bit, probably a bit of a longer progression than it's been for Kiandre. Uh, I, I think at the same age, uh, Noah looks to me to us more like Chernak did uh, at, the, at the same at the same stage of his of his development and the way he's grown within that. Tap a group uh would be really happy if noah can do the same with us
1: interesting to get your thoughts on or continue to talk like both defensemen. we kind of mash them both together we generally don't do that it's just i'm really interested sorry, to s-
5: sorry about that uh shane no, that's, no no
1: no, because we're mashing them both together so it's like I was like we're you know we generally like focus on one and the other so that's that's fine um i yep. did that and i expect that there's going to be you know um, that kind of conversation when it, when it comes to respect to Tristan is I just found that like, I agree with There's a He's a little bit more multifaceted than I think some people gave credit for. And I think sometimes you can get, we can get caught in the narrative like, Oh, well, he's a Q defenseman. Well, it's not the 1980s anymore. Right. So there is some other aspects to his game. And I think there's, I think the defenseman in today's NHL, although, you know, you want to pigeonhole them. I think sometimes a guy like Tristan, like from your respect, do you think he has that adaptability to play a lot more different roles given the time just to like get his speed up to, to par and some other aspects of his game to a level? Cause you know, sometimes like you had said with the other two guys in a previous segment, you can lean so heavily on the things you're really good at Um you know and it takes maybe a little bit longer just to push some of the other things you got to work on along with you before you hit an nhl level
5: yeah it, for sure you know, if you if you think of another gatino u d that has made his way onto the league you know alex Carrier is a really good example of right. a guy who's continued to work on his game uh, especially on his defensive game, he was always a, a good two-way guy. But you know, maybe a little bit undersized in, in when he was younger. He was leaner, but over four or five years of uh, he continued to grow his game uh, on defensive side. Now he's it's allowed him to to be a major player for for the Predators.
1: Yeah, and that's what I'm interested in. Like sometimes we forget. How long it really takes for players to develop, like not because he, he people seem to get so worked up, like why aren't they playing right away? When the average age is, you know, for a rookie is really you know twenty two to twenty three years of age, and draft plus plus five actually matters, particularly for a defenseman. I mean, it takes a lot of reps to get the get up to speed to play in the American League level and into the NHL. And um, for you, is it really just patience with both these young defensemen and that? this is what we think he's going to, they're both going to be when they hit that 23 mark.
5: Yeah. It's patience on our part. And it's also making them understand that they need to be patient, that it's not, uh, that it's not bad if they haven't made it after two years, you know, it's uh, it's difficult because they've got they've got that goal of playing in the nhl and that's what they're focusing on sometimes forgetting that you know the journey there is as important if you want to be there for a long time i i, yeah, I think agents are doing a better job of of educating their clients that way than they did 20 years ago but it it's still it's still a concern uh, it, it's still something that you need to live through and understand and see evolve over you know many draft picks and many years to to say okay let, let's slow down here let's let's make sure that uh this player is ready not only physically but mentally and has lived through all kinds of uh, of uh, experiences experiences to be able to deal with the pressure that he'll face once he's he's playing up.
1: Martin, once again, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. We always appreciate uh, the great insight and safe travels.
5: Thank you very much, guys.
1: That's Martin Madden, assistant general manager of the Anaheim Ducks. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after this.
0: Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Power
1: Player, hockey player development software at thepowerplayer.com. We're now speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis, sports psychologist and mental coach in our regular segments called It's All Mental. Thanks for coming on the show. We always appreciate it.
6: No, I love being here with you guys.
1: Well, we continue to talk about your book, Hockey, Grit, Grind, and Mind. And as we go through the chapters, we are in chapter four. It's uh, chapter four is purpose. And the topic in this segment is about values. And this topic only because values is such a, <laughs> I guess it would be such a large area to encompass even within, say, North America or Western Europe. Um, we're not even talking about the rest of the world um, and how people define their values differently and what's important and what's not. Then you're trying to get it into not only your personal values, but then there are the, there's the team values and their culture and then how that interact with not only the team concepts and what the team values, but what your you know, teammates value. So talk a little bit about from that perspective when you're sitting with your clients and discussing this this, this area. And then how does that sort of all play out?
6: So, you know, I know some people might think, you know, when are we going to get to the good stuff? We're going to start talking about real mental toughness stuff. Everything we talk about is awareness and passion and, and now values. Come on, Kev, this is, come on, let's, let's talk about some really cool stuff. But I think the reason that we sort of go to these foundation areas is because that's who you are, right? Who you are and what you do when sort of on automatic pilot. Now, I will say, too, that when it comes to values, there are things that we may value that we find uh, in our journey to become an elite player that we're sort of having to maybe decide, right? So something something I value is is being put to the test. And so the question is, under that pressure, what do I do? Do I... Do I go with, you know, what I feel like I should versus who I am? And when we talk about values, that's really what I'm talking about is who are you, right? What's important to you? Values are different. I think we're going to talk about goals a little bit too, but values and goals are a little bit different because goals are things that you do. Values are who you are. And I think that this awareness emphasis, this um, this self-perception emphasis that we keep talking about is critical for you being able to get the most out of yourself. And so when it comes to values, um, I, I, would, I would venture a guess that most people don't really know what their values are until you sort of sit down and, and sort of give them a list of things that they can choose. And, and that's what I do. In the book, you'll see that I, I've got a list of all these different areas of these values that I want guys to choose. And and I want them to choose the top three or four or five values that really stand out to them. And then sort of ask themselves, how, how do I honor these values when under pressure? And it's especially hard when we are under social sort of approval pressure um, to, to be a certain way, to act a certain way, to say certain things, to do certain things. And, and I'm telling you, when those things go against who we are, then that's when we have that's when we have struggle. That's when we find folks that are, are are maybe doing things and acting a way that is so uncomfortable. It's so not them, and it's because they never really took the time to to figure out what was important and what do I want to stand for.
7: Uh, Kevin, can you discuss how values um, help generate? Uh, purpose-oriented active uh, activities like uh, actions I guess would be the best word to describe this um, because from my perspective is um, if, you, if you say purpose is setting your intention right well intentionality breeds actions right is, is would that be the case and if so is that is that kind of what you're encompassing here with
6: this discussion yeah hundred percent so I, I think a great example would be so if I value getting long, right? I get along with folks and, and that's really important to me is that I just get along with everybody. Then when it comes to competing, to winning ugly, to, to you know, playing a, a type of game that you leave nothing on the table, well, it's, it's hard to get along with everybody when you play with that kind of mindset. And so that's a good example of, of you know, we want our hockey players to compete at a, at a level that other players really can't. Right. When when we come to when it comes to compete level and, you know, as a scout, that's something I know you, you you really look at in a player is their ability to battle, their ability to compete. And if you are and this is not a bad thing, but if you are, are really sort of locked up into other people's feelings and I just want to get along, I want to I want I want them to like me and those kinds of things, then you're going to struggle to turn on that that sort of beast compete mode that you need to when you need to. And so that's something that we have to understand in young players that, you know, we've got guys that that want to get along and don't really want to rock the boat, but now we're asking them to, to, you know, turn into something that they're not sure they can. And so that would be a great area that I would want to slowly work with the player to say, Hey, listen, just because you compete and win that battle, that doesn't mean that, you know, you put that person down. That doesn't mean that they lost. It just meant that you, you, you know, gave everything that you have to win that battle, and this is something that's going to make you a great hockey player. So that that's a, I, I think, a decent example of how values impact performance, impact behavior. Um, but there are so many other areas that you know you would look at being a good teammate. You know, getting being coachable, getting along with your teammates, getting getting along with your coach, stuff like that. There's so many areas that we could look into, but. Uh, it's got to start somewhere. And that's why I think it's part of the foundation stuff that we do in, uh, in hockey, grit, grind and mind.
1: Jim, glad you both brought that up because it was in a previous conversations on the show, but also just a couple segments ago, we were talking about a Swedish player and um, much of the conversations I have with my Swedish friends is that their society is so very much um, they innate, they're enabled people to get along and they talk about their problems in a very civilized manner. Um, their whole society is predicated and built on that, which obviously I admire because they're less likely to be you know, violent and unreasonable. But then when you have players are, who are been nurtured in that environment and you put them in a different environment like hockey in a highly stressful situation, we'll use an example like the under 20 world championships – and then they, they do a great job through the, you know, the beginning rounds and then they get into the core finals and semifinals and they have difficulty ramping it up. Um, do you yeah. see that Kevin in certain situations where the society itself actually impacts part of that? I mean, I don't want to ever, like the Swedes to take away that because I actually admire that about them, but do you think it can impact from that type of mentality when the chips are down and you've got to be, perhaps not the nicest person on the planet.
6: Yeah, that's a great example. That's a, that's a, such a good example of sort of the culture sort of promotes a certain value that is of course going to be adopted. You know, where we grow up, we learn from the people around us. And so that's a great example. And I think what the Swedes have done that make them so good is that uh, without losing that, you know, that honorable sort of cultural value, is they compartmentalize right there there's a time that I'm a hockey player and there's a time when I'm dad or I'm a friend or whatever and I think they've done a good job of being able to to play that north american game in competition but not change who they are to do it and so when i look at you know some of these junior tournaments where they, they're they're performing such a high level and they and you can even see them they get a little gritty and a little chippy and and you know on the ice but it's because they're able to sort of bring on that that persona that's required for this you know fast intense game and but not change who they are so that's but you do that through recognition they have made a deliberate effort to to help these young players compartmentalize their personal life and their hockey performance. And I think that's why they stand out. Not everybody does that as well. And so I think that's that's what you see in some of these cultural differences in, in the sport.
8: We're going to take a
1: quick break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll be right back.
8: Did you know you can open upper deck hockey packs any time of the day from anywhere in the world? Well, if you haven't checked out Upper Deck ePack yet, you're really missing out. Open NHL trading cards from your smartphone, tablet, or computer and conduct trades with other collectors all over the world. These are not just digital cards. You can actually store cards for free on Upper Deck ePack and have them shipped to you for a nominal fee. Check out the new wave of collecting at UpperDeckEPack.com. That's Upper Deck, the letter E, and pack.com.
9: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat. Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics.
1: What does every competitive hockey player, no matter their age or ability level, need from their coaches? They need knowledge that will help them improve in specific areas and they need to know how they're doing. PowerPlayer brings clarity to the development process and helps build stronger relationships and trust between coaches, players, and parents. A feedback platform built around performance evaluation system, PowerPlayer helps coaches provide individualized instruction, performance metrics, and ratings, and comments and video directly to players. Visit thepowerplayer.com today and get in the feedback game.
10: Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players.
0: Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back and powered by Power Player, hockey player development software at the PowerPlayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis, sports psychologist and mental coach, about his book, Hockey Grit, Grind, and Mind, as we continue through the chapters. We're in Chapter 4, which is Purpose. Uh, the subtopic for this segment is Goals. So, Kevin, talk a little bit about When you're sitting with your clients, uh, your hockey players, and you're talking about goals, um, how do you structure that conversation? Because I could see that, especially if it's a younger player, you know, in their teens, maybe even early 20s, how that could go off the rails a little bit, only because, you know, as a younger person, you're not nearly as necessarily maybe as, as wise and experienced in life Um, And you're not quite as focused on certain things that perhaps you need to be, have some level of attention to. So how does that conversation go when you're trying to, you know, help them establish what their real goals are?
6: Yeah, well, when they're young, think about it, when you're young, and I say, you know, you're, you're new to hockey, you're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, so much of your life to this point has just been sort of directed, right? Yeah, be here, go there, do this. Um, And so the need for goals is is not necessary. But as you sort of hit that 14 year old, 15 year old, 16 year old, if you don't understand that you are now being given the keys to the bus, that you are now giving a chance to drive and and decide where you're going to go and what you're going to be. Then goals are critical, you know. And the thing about goals, and this is what's so difficult, it's so frustrating, is that you talk to anybody and say, "So tell me your goals." Or no, do you set goals? That'll be my question. Do you set goals? And all, all the heads are nodding. Yes, yes, of course I set goals. And I say, "So, so what are they?" And that's when I can tell that they're figuring it out right there, so that they can answer me. Oh, I want to, oh, I want to win the league. I want to, I want to be the best score. And, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh you 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 know how important goals are but you haven't really set them you're just sort of winging it and i get that i get that because this is so obvious it's one of those things that it's so obvious that we just sort of gloss over it but i'll be honest with you goals are critical for reaching you know the higher levels in this game if you don't decide where you want to go and make a deliberate plan to get there then you will just end up on somebody else's bus going to somebody else's destination. And you'll look up one day and you'll say, how the hell did I get here? Right. And I'm, I'm sure you guys see it. You see it in the, in the players that you scout all the time, the guys that are taking control over their lives, because they've be very specific and, and directive with what their goals are. Uh, and then guys that are just sort of riding it out, seeing where they end up and then complaining about it at the end.
7: You know, as a sports psychologist, I'm sure you have to deal with um, looking at goals from the lens of different athletes at different levels. But if you're to take, let's say Patrick Laine, for example, okay. An elite sniper who's had a bit of difficulty and then you take a a player who's just trying to stay up uh, with the team, the full time and create uh, an impact on a depth role. um, Can you speak to the difference of how the goal orientation is perceived and how you modify their goal, their goals so that they can, they can stay within a threshold, right? So Patrick lining wants to remain an elite caliber sniper and be a first line star caliber player. So his goal orientation is going to have to be very different than a fourth liner. Who's just happy to make it after coming up from the AHL.
6: Yeah, no, that's a great example. And, and I think what, what I, what I work with is, you know, you think about goals, you think about short-term goals, long-term goals, right? That's obvious. That's what we all know, right? These are things I want to accomplish this week. These are things I want to accomplish this season. You know, these are things I want to accomplish in my career. Okay. I get that. But I break them down into to three types of goals. And these are really important distinctions because it, it, it sort of feeds into what you were just talking about. One is outcome goals. You know, outcome goals are things that I want to accomplish. The thing about outcome goals is that they're not always things that you have control over? All the variables, right? So if I want to be the best, the leading scorer on my team, say for instance, then I better have an offensive team. I had, I better have guys that move the puck well and see me, and I better get in the good scoring positions. Okay, that's on me. But if the guys aren't passing, then you know I've got an issue. So outcome goals are great. We need to have them. They're really important. But they're not always under our control, not under our control. The second type of goal is what I call a performance goal. Now, these are goals that are under your control. These are things, this is you challenging you. You know, I want to gain 10 pounds. I want to, you know, pick up some speed. I want to be more agile. I want to improve my stick handling, right? These are things that you get to decide what they are. And then it's up to you to improve it. Now, you can have coaches and guys that understand what these goals are and continue to push you, but it's you against you. And then the third type of goal is what's called a process goal, and this is real. These are like micro, short-term goals and things that you need to do in the moment to be the best player that you can. I talk about it in in terms of ABCs. ABCs are are three things that you do really well in a game, and when you when you do those skills at a high level, you typically play well. So, if you have a D-man, you know, you want to you know get pucks out, swivel. Uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you quick first pass, right? Things like that jump up into the play. These are very specific skills that, when you execute them right, you'll have a good game. And why these process goals are so important is that when you have these things queued up, ready to go, when you lose focus, when you emotional control, then your only job is to go straight to those goals and just execute those goals. It's not to figure out what's going on, figure out why so-and-so is doing such and such. It's just to get pucks deep, get shots on net, get in the scoring position, you know, win 50-50s. And I think understanding these three types of goals, and when you mentioned Patrick Lainey, he right now needs to work on performance goals. He needs to sort of get his game back so that he's playing at the level that we know if he's focused on outcome goals and he's wondering why he's not getting so much ice time, he's wondering why the coach is upset. He's wondering why, you know, the fans are sort a of hard time. Well, those are things he can't control. So you spend a lot of time in that space. Well, you're going to be frustrated for the most part.
1: You know, and that's really fascinating. I'm glad you brought up that, that comparison and that analogy with, you know, from a player, observing a player through that, process and being able to recognize it so that whether you're a coach or a manager or you're even a scout because a lot of scouts will see their prospects play and talk to them if it's, i think it certainly is very helpful if you can recognize that and say and just mention it to the player hey you know what are you thinking what are you feeling and recognize oh like he maybe he's stuck in an outcome goals loop that I can yeah. maybe, you know, re- you know remind him that, hey, maybe you want to get into like more like performance goal and then even get it, bring it down to a smaller level to make his world even smaller to allow him to focus on it on some process goals. Just I, I think that's a tool that would be really useful for people that are in hockey operations, just as you as another tool to speak to your players about yeah uh, from the standpoint. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on on that?
6: Well, I mean, you think about when you know, and hopefully, coaches do this. Assistant coaches do this, and they, you know, they are talking to their guys. What What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish this season? What What are the things that you're working on, right? So, th- those two questions address outcome goals: what are you trying to accomplish this season, and what are you working on performance goals, right? And so, those two things it's important to understand. If I've got a, a goalie who wants to be the top GAA in the league, but I've got a defense that is maybe, you know, porous, maybe they're, they're, you know, they're, they're an offensive defense so that there are times when they get lit up. Then I've got to coach that goalie to, to sort of recognize that there are some challenges to that particular goal, right? Not, not, not of any of his, uh, you know, skill issues, but just the fact, the way we put it together. So I I think that's a great example of how we organize um, teams, organizations to help meet the goals of our players. And and from an operational standpoint, I think that's, that's part of what makes great teams great teams.
1: Well, Kevin, I want to thank you very much for coming on our show. We always appreciate your great insight. And to all our guests and Tim Taylor and Mark Yates and Brad Bombadier. I'm Shane Malloy. And for Brad Allen, it's another edition of Hockey Prospect Radio. And we will see you at the rink.
8: Did you know you can open upper deck hockey packs any time of the day from anywhere in the world? Well, if you haven't checked out Upper Deck ePack yet, you're really missing out. Open NHL trading cards from your smartphone, tablet, or computer and conduct trades with other collectors all over the world. These are not just digital cards. You can actually store cards for free on Upper Deck ePack and have them shipped to you for a nominal fee. Check out the new wave of collecting at UpperDeckEPack.com. That's Upper Deck, the letter E, and pack.com.
9: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using InStat. Stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics
1: what does every competitive hockey player no matter their age or ability level need from their coaches they need knowledge that will help them improve in specific areas and they need to know how they're doing power player brings clarity to the development process and helps build stronger relationships and trust between coaches players and parents A feedback platform built around performance evaluation system, PowerPlayer helps coaches provide individualized instruction, performance metrics, and ratings, and comments and video directly to players. Visit thepowerplayer.com today and get in the feedback game.
10: Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players.